Well, um, I invite you to take, the, take a Bible and turn to John. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, we'll get you one. Um, there should be some close by. Uh, if you don't have one as your own, take it, have it, read it. Uh, if you have a friend that needs one, take it, give it away, wrap it up from your name. Give it to them. Don't say anything about us. Just, man, if you have friends that need Bibles, by all means, we'll get you as many as you need, okay, and as many as your friends need. Uh, it, it changes lives. The power of God's Word is amazing. Um, we turn to John 1 there. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 35. Um, I'm going to read the passage and uh, pray for us once more, and then we're going to dig in, okay? All right, read along with me. Here we go. John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will now be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is going to be a lot of fun to work through. There's a lot of beautiful things here in this text. Let's pray and ask God to help me and help us all as we learn, okay? Lord, um, would you please uh, truly be with us here, be present, um, allow these things to, to resonate and come clear uh, mentally for us to grasp intellectually, but Lord, may we feel these things, may we, may we feel these things deep within our hearts, Lord, at that character, life-controlling level where we're altered by the truths of your scripture here till we live differently from this point forward. Lord, may we not just enter this place and leave the same. May we, every single one of us, leave here differently. Lord, may we all leave change today in some way. Lord, please encourage us through your word. Allow us to hear and understand. Lord, may we hear and know what it is that the Spirit of the Lord is saying in this passage. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. We know you can help us with this. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so here in the context of John 1, we're moving from John the Baptist's testimony of who Jesus is to the, the call of Jesus and his first disciples. Okay, the first where he's actually calling them to be with him. And we see here that, that and we're going to expound this idea in the, in the coming weeks, but Jesus is simply looking for ordinary people. He's calling them. They're responding to him by faith. They are empowered by him to do extraordinary things. And these men did not know everything about Jesus. As a matter of fact, they knew very little about Jesus. But they had the simple faith to trust him and grow in their knowledge and faith of him, baby step by baby step, growing more and more every day. Near every theologian considers Jesus here to be between 30 and 33 years old. I'm 32 years old. I'm right here in this approximate age. So I would say that Jesus wasn't an old man, okay? I would say that he was very young and very much in his prime here, okay? So let's, let's consider that. And uh, it's not funny. Um, let's look at verse 35 and we'll begin uh, our study. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. John the Baptist standing here with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. And he, as, as Jesus walked by, and again, unable to control himself with such joy and excitement, again, it never gets old to John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God. Like I could just imagine every single time he saw Jesus. This is just two recorded instances. I believe that every time he saw Jesus, he could not help but say this. Almost like to the point where like, hey, when we turn around this corner, this is Jesus talking. As we turn around this corner, watch this. There's going to be a guy. He's going to shout. Just watch this. Behold, I've got to talk to you every time. Never failed. You know, like, because he was so consumed with, and this was his life. His life was to point to Jesus. He was to baptize. That's why they call him John the Baptist. He was John the baptizer, literally. All right. And he was to baptize until he saw Jesus and the spirit descend on him and remain on him. That's how he was to know that that was the Messiah that the Old Testament was written about. So when he actually saw that, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the next day he sees him. Behold the Lamb of God. Because he's given his whole life to this, and it's actually here. He can see it. He's saying, look, behold. The idea is look. There was no greater term to get your attention other than the word behold. It was as big as it could get. There was no other word. There was no other way to, to phrase, hey, look, okay? This is it. It's almost like, hey, look, look, there he is. Look, look, look. The Lamb of God. That's him. It's, that, it's not just behold the Lamb of God. There was such excitement and zeal and passion. There was adrenaline flowing through his veins. There was goosebumps or whatever you call the, that stuff that pops up on your skin when you get excited. You know, it's like he sees it. He's like right there. The Lamb of God. My prayer is that this will be my reaction as I read Scripture. My prayer is that this will be your reaction as you encounter Jesus Christ personally. That this would not become something old or routine. My prayer for all of us is that we will be consumed with this man who says he's the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Redeemer. This is my hope. This is my prayer. I want to be like that. 
My fear is that we're so inoculated by the truth that we're numb to Jesus and we're numb to church. We're numb just to how profound it is to be able to gather in a room, open up a Bible, a real Bible. Like, this isn't like, this is like... The whole thing. This is the Bible collected. Look at this thing. You know, for hundreds of years, people would have literally killed you to get a hold of this. This is the actual Word of God. This is precious. This is true. This is a foundation on which we can build our lives. This is the lens by which we consider all of life. This is where we gain our worldview. This is where we gain what truth is, where true north is, where we can anchor ourselves. And this is just so, I mean, we, it's flipping. It's like on Sunday mornings we get up and we're like, oh, yeah, wait, i got to go back in. Or, Let's go. So easy to become inoculated to this. My prayer, without guilting and beating up any further than what I've done, that's not my point. My point is that, man, my prayer is that we would just get a passion for Jesus. That we just can't shut up. I mean, who knows what John the Baptist was doing? He was there with his two disciples. Who knows what they were talking about? You know, could this Messiah build a mountain so big that he couldn't move it? I don't know, John. That's a good question. Oh, oh, behold, the Lamb of God! Like, right there in the middle. It's not like he was just around and just waiting for that moment. It just consumed him. It totally bypassed everything that he was doing in that moment. It superseded that. He had to declare, Jesus, the Lamb of God, look at Jesus. May we be the same. And may our conversations be like this. Whether it be in community groups or however you consider your access family, may we call people up, email people, look at what I found. Check this out. Look, I, I was reading this in the Old Testament. This is such a beautiful picture of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. Or look at this truth in Ephesians or Romans. Like This is so, like, this is crazy. May this be the type of excitement that we have that's worth following. That's worth going and checking out what you're into. Watching a Christian live like this attracts people. Okay? That is a great way to be a missionary. It's for God to do something in us to where we're truly excited about him. That's what's fun. Getting in on that type of excitement. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They didn't know all about Jesus. They knew what the Old Testament said. They've seen Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God. They moved from John the Baptist and following him. They moved to Jesus. This very rarely happened for disciples to move to someone else. Usually they followed their rabbi, their teacher, for their whole life. I mean, they followed that person for a reason. They thought he was the best. So for them to follow him, it was oddly, with great humility, it was the joy of John the Baptist's heart as he saw two of his disciples walk towards Jesus. He's like, yeah, I'm pointing, and they're actually walking in that direction. This is a win. I love his humility there. I love their simple faith to follow Jesus. It's, it's incredible. I asked myself this, and I ask you the same question. Are you okay following Jesus even though you don't know every single thing about Jesus? Do you have to have it all figured out first? And then you'll trust. Or are you okay with simply knowing that, that he says he is Lord and trusting 
and following and growing to know him more and more every day? Are you trying to get it reversed in really what it takes faith to believe? Are you trying to get all the evidence first? Consider that question. Verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And that parenthesis there, which means teacher, was, was written uh, by John, the author, to be able to explain what that word rabbi meant in his culture because it was a foreign term in some settings. But what it literally means is my great one. My great one, where are you staying? This is a layered question that Jesus was asking himself here asking those others, what are you seeking? What are you seeking as far as in what direction? Do you want to know, are you following me to, to get to where I'm going? Or are you following me because, as you say, I am a rabbi and you want to follow my teachings? Are you wanting to follow my direction or my life? Okay, it was a, it was a layered question that they would grasp. So I asked myself this, and Jacob and I were considering this this week in this passage, is what are we seeking why are we following Jesus? Why are we even here today? What is our motive for pursuing Christianity? What is our motive for pursuing Jesus and the church community? Is it because we have this idea that if we're in a church and part of a Christian community that we will experience a, a, a greater depth of prosperity and health? Or that if we don't connect with a Christian community that we're going to have death and disease? Are we considering church and Jesus and Christianity something that allows us to be comfortable and convenient, to have a great safe place to, to develop friends instead of the bar scene or, or somewhere else where it could be a little bit more risque? Are you looking to try to earn God's favor by hanging out with his people? Are you, are you trying to earn brownie points with God by, by showing up to church and reading your Bible? There's, there's pieces of those things that are okay. But as, as a follower, as someone who is pursuing Jesus Christ, our pursuit should be to know Jesus as Savior and to see the Father's glory. Our pursuit should be to learn more of who I am and what is in store for me in Christ. What does my future look like in Jesus? Because I know I don't like what I'm I'm, I'm, I'm heading towards myself. So in Christ, what does that look like? It's an innocent pursuit of wanting to know Jesus. That's beautiful. Perhaps it's how you can learn to be a better missionary or ambassador for Jesus. These are great reasons. But just ask yourself that question. If, if, if Jesus were here today and he would ask you, what are you here for? If, you, if he were to ask you tomorrow morning, if he were just to, boom, pop up there next to your desk or couch as you're reading the Bible, he says, why are you reading the Bible today? Are you just trying to store up intellectual truths to win the next argument? Are you trying to prove that you're, that you're qualified to be a leader by, by your knowledge and not your lifestyle? So you're trying to bank up a lot of knowledge so the pastors will recognize you? Or are you studying the scripture because you want to know me? Consider this question. Why were they following him that day? It was more than wanting to know which direction he was walking. And we'll see this as it unfolds. 
Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. And a 10th hour doesn't mean 10 o'clock. The way they ruled, that was a Roman clock, okay? This is in Jerusalem, okay? This is where they, they looked at the clock like a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours. So the 10th hour would be about 4 o'clock. And around 4 or 5 o'clock, wherever you were with friends or buddies hanging out somewhere, you more often than not, would eat a meal with them and then stay the night because traveling took so long on foot and it was dangerous. Once the sun went down, it was a very dangerous thing to walk around first century Jerusalem or the scattering Galilean towns like Basidia, Capernaum, and so forth. You remember uh, the Good Samaritan, right? When the man was traveling, he was overcome by muggers. Remember that story? That's kind of the, that's why you kind of, stayed low at night. And so this wasn't an odd question, though I'm sure that there was a, like, I got some questions. Like, if he's really the Messiah, I, I, man, I've got a plethora of questions to ask this fellow. So hopefully he'll let us come over and hang out and spend the night and throw us a meal in there too. And so he, they ended up staying. And one, one phrase here, the coming you will see, is a, is a conditional imperative, which literally means this. And this is really interesting. Jesus says, literally, if you come, and if I want you to come, you will see. If you walk with me, and if I want you to walk with me, then you'll walk with me. So he's declaring his ability to be all-powerful right here. He's stating a fact. Come, and you will see. And it's layered. Come, and if I want you to come, you will see. Okay, moving on. Just one of those little cool things that you discover. All right, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So there's two disciples who were with John the Baptist. Okay, in verse 35. We now have here one was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, this is not written in narrative form like in, in order here. So Simon Peter was John writing after the, fa- after the story took place. He's referencing back. This is Simon Peter, but his name hasn't been changed to Peter yet. Okay? So this is him just writing after the fact. This is Simon Peter because it was so secondhand for him to consider Simon, Simon Peter. So literally this is, uh, he's speaking of Simon, uh, Andrew, Simon's brother. Okay? He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. I love how that this is the first time, but we're going to see multiple times in John's letter, every time Andrew was with somebody, he was bringing them to Jesus. Every single time he had a chance to get somebody to Jesus, he was bringing somebody, and here he was bringing his brother. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, for a rabbi to change your name, for a superior to change your name was not uncommon. It was not taken lightly. It always meant something. It was always profound. It was stating a fact. Jesus knows Simon so well that he gives, he, he, he gives him a new name. He renames him something that he isn't yet, but that he will one day be. He says, you are rock, speaking to his future role in starting the church. His future role in who he will be as a man in his character. 
He's speaking into his life something that isn't yet, but knows that he will be because of who he is as Jesus. Christian, just as Simon was given a name that would forever change his identity, so you and I have been given a new identity that changes us through Christ's power in this lifetime, transforming us into something that we're not yet, and also in eternity where he saves us completely and fully, where we're children of the king. We, too, have a new identity through Christ and his power. This is but a picture of what we have in a greater way. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Okay, this is so cool. This never happened. A rabbi to be desperate enough they would never stoop to a point where they would say, come follow me. Because those that would be asked to come and follow had already been turned, or, turned away from every other rabbi. And they've, had, they've been deemed insufficient. So they've had to go take on their own career. If you wanted to follow a rabbi, you simply did what Andrew and John did. And you just followed Jesus. You just walked behind him. And you just went with him everywhere. You heard his thought. As he was thinking out loud, you would hear him as he talked about the trees, the dirt, the grass, the Old Testament, like everything. He's like, oh, this guy's so brilliant. So you just would follow. And then every now and then a rabbi would look back and he would say, okay, yeah, you're good enough because my reputation's on the line here as a rabbi. I want to be considered important and knowledgeable. So that means you cannot follow me because you are simply not good enough. He would send them away. That's just how the rabbis handled themselves. It says so much about Jesus here that he went to find these men that would be his disciples on which the church would start. It's interesting to note, and we'll get to this later at his crucifixion, when he's telling them that he's going to die. And they're so discouraged. And to, or this is just before his ascension, after the crucifixion and resurrection, he looks at his disciples and he says, as they're so discouraged, he's like, no, 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 listen. Remember, remember, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And that gave them such identity and strength. That gave them such fervor. That gave them such courage. Yes, he believes in me. Yes, for a rabbi to go out of his way to find someone says so much of Jesus. This word found here, he found Philip. Um, it's significant too. Yesterday, uh, we ran the Germantown 5K. Jill and I and, I don't know, probably 15 others of you all at least uh, ran the 5K. Some of us ran it, some of us walked it, some of us sprinted it. Um, <clears throat> but for those who aren't in the Army, um, and we kind of jogged it, okay? Um, uh, anyway, thanks, Jeremy Weeks, for showing us all up. Um, anyway, we, after the 5K, Jill and I noticed someone on the stage singing that we went to school with in college, Tiffany Johnson. And she was singing. And um, 
Jill said, did you, did you notice Tiffany Johnson? I was like, hey, you know, and afterwards I went to go talk to her because uh, we, we all went to school together. We were all kind of close friends back then, especially my sister and her were really close. And so it was just good to reconnect. Story one. Story two. I remember when I asked Jill, this happens a lot, say, Jill, where are your car keys? And it's always a search, okay? Not always, exaggeration. It's a search sometimes, okay? And it's one of those, like, I need them now, and every second that I'm looking and not finding them is just wasted time. We should know where our keys are all the time. We should never lose these things. What if the fire happened? What if we need to rush to the emergency room? We've got to find these keys, okay? We're looking, we're looking, we're looking. It's a pursuit, okay? That's story two. This word here has more to do with lost keys than noticing Tiffany Johnson. Jesus here isn't just simply noticing and being like, oh yeah, there's Philip. Philip, come follow me. He went after him with a purpose. As if he were lost. As if he was to actually find him, specifically Philip, and not just notice him. Oh yeah, Philip, hey, come on, follow me. He's like, no, Philip, gotcha, I came here for this reason. Come on, let's roll. Follow me. That's exactly what happens. When Christ redeems you, he has pursued your soul. As Pastor Jacob says, he has romanced you to the point that you have seen him as worthy of worship. And you follow him. It's beautiful. Again, speaking of his sovereignty and his providence working here and his power. Okay? It's beautiful. All right, verse 44. Now, Philip was from Basidia, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Stop searching. Come and see him. We don't have to have faith to, to believe he's coming. He has come. We can go look at him. Let's go. We found him. The whole Old Testament is about this guy. Let's go look at him. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. It's, it's, a, it's a little subtle jab at some jealousy within Galilee of this different communities and, and cities. If he would have said he was Jesus from Bethlehem, thinking, oh, David from the Old Testament, the king who's, we're, we're looking for the greater son of David, Bethlehem, but just to be known as Jesus of Nazareth, that just wasn't like, can anything good come out of that town? Because that's not as cool and as trendy as my community. He's like, come and see. Literally, yes, absolutely, something good, great can come out of Nazareth. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael, who just made this little jab at the town where Jesus was coming from. He saw him coming toward him, and he said to him, Jesus speaks of Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed. Israelite had a lot to do with truth and pursuing truth. Indeed, he is a truth seeker indeed, is what he was going at here. Reiterating Nathanael's character and what he was walking towards Jesus regarding. And he says, in whom there is no deceit. Literally what this means is not that he's perfect, not that Nathaniel is, is innocent, 
But he's noticing Nathanael's pure motive and wanting to see for himself who Jesus was. He knew that he has an innocent, pure desire to know the truth. And he's stating that by the word indeed and no deceit. So that blew him away. Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you over here, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we don't have, we're not privy to the information here of what was going on there or who was around Nathanael or if he knew anyone was around. Maybe it was something under the tree that he thought he was alone. But here something is, is abbreviated that rocked Nathanael's world. This was Jesus proving a supernatural knowledge ability. It rocked Nathaniel so much that his next words are, Rabbi, literally, in this context, my great one, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Looking at the Old Testament, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. You are the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You disciples, literally, you all will see greater things than these. Jesus knows here that Nathaniel's faith is based merely upon a miracle, which is insecure at best. And he references the insecurity of basing your faith on miracles in John 4 and in John 14. We'll get there later. Then he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, Amen, I say to you. He's showing here with that phrase the importance and, and trustworthiness of what he's about to, to share with them. Just to put it literally, I'm telling you the truth here. Here is the truth. So it's double stating this. He's wanting them to know that the, he's about to share something profound. I'm telling you guys the truth. Here's the truth. I say to you all, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Those disciples, or those first disciples, those, the guys who first heard that, their eyes would have gone like, they would have gotten goosebumps, okay? They would have gone like, seriously? This means very little to us today. And even when I explain it, it's not going to feel the same. This was... Two phrases that meant something so dear to this culture. When he said the vision, when he said heaven opened, automatically they would think a supernatural, divine vision that they're going to be privy to. Whoa, okay? That just doesn't happen every day. And when he, when he said ascending and descending on Jesus, that was a little too much. Uh, they almost popped, okay? That, they would have been so excited at this point that they could not control themselves. These were phrases that meant something so dear to them. They anchored their faith on these phrases because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's referencing Genesis 28 where Jacob, their, one of their patriarchs, has a vision. Heaven opens. He has a vision of God speaking to Jacob and telling Jacob, Jacob, as I was with Abraham, so I will be with you. And your children of Israel and your children's children and your children's children will know me through you as if you were a ladder. 
As if you were a stairway to heaven. They will go up and down Jacob and through Jacob. My lineage, my, my power, my lineage is going to be through you. Jesus is declaring here, I am that greater Jacob. I am here. They'll be like, whoa, this is really him. The, the search is over. We bank so much on being from Jacob. Now we can be from Jesus. Our true Savior is here. The one who Jacob pointed towards is here. And we're seeing him. This changes everything. What the disciples are promised here is heaven-sent confirmation that the one they've acknowledged as the Messiah has been anointed by God and is the greater Jacob. And Jesus is identifying himself as that greater Jacob. Because God promised to Abraham, who then promised to Jacob, and then promises through those who are in Jesus these things. That God is reversing the effects of sin and death and the fall through Abraham's offspring, through Jacob's offspring, through Jesus, the Savior, and his children. The fall is reversed because of Christ. Secondly, that all peoples will be blessed through him. All people are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. All people are going to be blessed through you, Jacob. Jesus says, all people will be blessed through me. And that all people, that, that God will be with him. Abraham, God is with you. Jacob, God is with you. Jesus, you are God. You're not just providing another ladder through Jacob. You are that ladder. You're providing yourself to be the means of getting from here where everything is faith to seeing you face to face in eternity. Rather than providing us do's and don'ts and lists of things we have to do, you came to us and you made yourself the way. You fulfilled the law for us. And then lastly, that God would establish him and his people in the promised land. Abraham heard that. Jacob heard that. Jesus is that. He is the great deliverer. For Jacob, it was only a dream. Here, the disciples' world just got rocked because Jesus said, you will see this happen. You will see it. This is a picture of the gospel. Rather than the angels ascending and descending on a stairway to Jacob, they are to ascend and descend on Jesus in Christ, literally. So then we go back to what we considered in Ephesians where that beautiful union of being in Christ is so just exploded there in that book. Where there's such power in Christ, that association we have with Jesus in Him. Where He is our substitute, our representative. We are not looked upon ourselves, but God looks upon Jesus instead of us. And we are deemed righteous because of His work, because we're in Him. We're in Christ. This is a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. There is... But one central issue in this passage this morning, the coming of Jesus. Jesus is himself the fulfillment of all God's promises to rescue and redeem a people for his very own. And our Savior is here. Jesus is here. May we echo with John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sin of the world.
Behold, the long-awaited Lamb of God who will deal with sin once and for all is here. Behold, the long-promised King, Christ, Messiah, Son, who will rule God's people forever is here. Behold, the central and enabling figure in the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out His Spirit to us so that we as God's people may remain His people forever is here. Behold our Savior who demonstrates His divinity by displaying complete knowledge of the disciples that He calls as well as to us is here. We don't need to look anywhere else. Nothing else will fulfill. Not even placing our hope in an old theological system based on the old law. They were to shift their allegiance from Jacob to Jesus, from John the Baptist, like those disciples who followed him instead of John the Baptist, they're following Jesus. May we be that way too. May we not be following Jeremy. May we be following Jesus. May we not be following Jacob. May we be following Jesus. May we not be following merely the Axis Church, but the Jesus of the Axis Church. This is to be our passion. This is where our life is. It's anchored solely on Jesus Christ. He is the Savior who promises far greater things for those who follow Him. This is who He is. We find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's the point. And He is here. That's the point. Okay? The application and where we flow from this point is then, in this context, in, in first century Jerusalem, the application was that John the Baptist persuaded the disciples that Jesus really was a long-awaited Messiah. And he convinced them that Jesus' central purpose in becoming flesh was to be the Lamb of God. It wasn't just to be cute little Christmas baby Jesus. It was to be the Savior of the world on the cross who beats death and the grave, ascends back to the Father, and prepares a place for us to live in all eternity with him in his glory. That's why he came. John the Baptist used several Old Testament points in order to illustrate the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus calls to the disciples, assured them that what the Baptist said regarding Jesus was true. He proved that he had power. He proved that he had knowledge. He proved that he was the Messiah. He was different. He was distinct. The disciples are convinced of Jesus being the Christ by his supernatural knowledge. They turn to follow Jesus, recognizing him as a long-awaited hope. Lastly, the application for that first century is that Jesus gives them a promise that they will see far greater things through him and to all those who follow him. So how's the application for us today? How's it differ from first century? This truth that we just unpacked in these passages doesn't alter at all. It's still the same. We must listen to the Baptist, John the Baptist, and open our eyes to see the identity and purpose of the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited hope-giver, the one who has life. There is hope in no other. We should see the disciples' response to Jesus' call and learn from them that the Baptist is speaking truth. The Messiah, the ultimate truth and hope, has arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the exact same application. The point of John writing this 2,000 years ago, roughly, is the same point today. Our Messiah is here. Place your hope in him. He is God. He says he's God. The prophet said he's God. John the Baptist says he's God. Trust him and love him and serve him as God. Jesus, his distinct claims of being God eliminate 
the popular idea from skeptics and seekers who regard him as simply a good moral man or a prophet. Someone who said some cool pithy sayings that are somewhat profound. And so often that conclusion is passed off as the only acceptable one to scholars and seekers. The trouble is that many people nod their heads in agreement but never really consider the foolishness of what it means to trust Jesus as a teacher and not love him and serve him as God. Consider what C.S. Lewis says. He was a professor at Cambridge, you know, Narnia, stuff like that. He was an author, theologian, but he was once an agnostic. Okay, he knew there was truth, but he did not see truth in Jesus Christ. He understood it clearly, though, when he wrote this. I'm trying here, this is his words, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. He continues his thought. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Continuing his thoughts, C.S. Lewis. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. You see, quite frankly, Jesus claimed to be God. He did not leave any other option open. His claim must either be true or false. So if it's false, if he's not God, that leaves us with two alternatives. Either he knew it was false and he intentionally deceived, so he was a liar, or he had no idea it was false and he was crazy and he misled hundreds of people, millions of people, even to receive martyrdom's death, even himself to die over false claims. So if he's a liar, then he knew that he was not God and he was lying and deliberately deceiving his followers. If he couldn't back up his claims and he knew it, then he was unspeakably evil. Also, he would also be considered a fool because his claims to be God led to his crucifixion. Many will say that he's a good moral teacher, but let's be realistic. How could he be a great moral teacher and knowingly mislead so many people at the most important piece of his teaching, speaking to his identity as being God? So either he was a deliberate liar or he was a lunatic. And somehow no one caught this fact that he was crazy. Somehow he attracted so many people to believe in him and to die of death. And even those who stand in church history as those who are historians during this time, though not believers, write great things about Jesus being a good moral person. If he's an intentional lunatic, that's a sketchy, slippery slope. Historically speaking, the evidence doesn't match up. So the other alternative is Lord. And I personally cannot conclude that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic. So the other alternative is that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist was speaking of, the Son of God, as Jesus claimed to be. 
So the issue with these three alternatives is not which one is possible. Obviously, all these could be possible. He could be a liar. He could be a lunatic. He could be Lord. But it's not of what's more possible. The question is what's more probable. Who you decide Jesus Christ is must not be an idle intellectual exercise. You must put thought into it. You cannot put him on the shelf as simply a great moral teacher. That's not an option. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is God. And you must make this choice. But as the Apostle John wrote, and we referenced this a couple weeks ago in John 30, or 20, 31. John wrote these things that have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and more important, that believing you might have life in His name. It's why we're studying this book. is because it's written with the purpose of pointing you to Jesus. Pushing Him in your face and saying, make a decision. Look at Him. Who is He? Love Him as God if He is God. Run from Him as evil if you do not think He is God. But do not remain idle and undecided. You can't do that with Jesus. So I would encourage those who are in Christ to see yourselves as having a new identity, much like Peter received a new identity, not based on his performance up to that point, or even what he had personally in him, but what God saw in him, about what God knew he could do in Peter, in Simon, to make him that Peter, that Cephas, that rock. Be encouraged, Christian. This is you too.